0: Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Off the Post. This is actually episode number sixty, a full hockey game's worth of episodes. That is, if every episode was a minute. Um, anyways, John Mattis, your host. I'm here. Kelly Rudy's on the other side of this intro, but before we get to him, I wanted to read a little passage from from his book, which we talk about um, throughout the episode. Um, which, by the way, is a little short, but we're we're tight on time, so. Hence, this uh, this intro, and hence me reading this passage. So, he has a short chapter in his book called I Hate the Shake. And what's the shake, you ask? Well, it's the handshake line. The classic after a playoff series line where both teams go head-to-head, shake each other's hands, say good game, you would think, here or there, maybe some other words are exchanged. You, you don't know too much about it as a fan or as a media member, like, it's one of those things where you kind of have to live it, and I, I assumed that most players, winners, losers, um, enjoyed it, or it was it was a bit of closure, so to speak. Um, but it turns out Clay Rudy has never been a fan. So uh, the passage is is about the handshake line, and keep in mind this is from a memory of of from the late '70s when he was in the WHL playing for the Medicine Hat Tigers and just had a bad experience with. With the handshake line because he was so furious after losing a playoff series. Now, I can't stand the handshake. Never did like it. I've never said anything nice to anybody on the other team. And I don't recall anybody ever saying anything nice to me. I don't find any value in it. I think it's bullshit. I think it's fake. The problem with the handshake is that it's not in the spirit of how I played the game. I wanted to win. And if I won, I deserved it. And if you won, you deserved it. I never felt consoled by another guy's handshake. I played in a state of hate. I didn't just dislike my opponents, I hated each and every one of them. Two minutes after the horn, that hatred didn't go away. It took a little longer than that. So that was the passage. Uh, I'm officially done being Kelly Rudy for a minute of my life. And... Uh I just wanted to include that in the intro because I found it fascinating that he was he was so fired up about um, this element of the game of hockey that we don't really know much about. And uh, if you actually pick up the book and, and read it, that that chapter adds more context to why he was so furious. But um, there's a little sneak peek. And uh, now we'll get to the actual interview. Uh, me and Kelly, we recorded this on Monday morning and uh, enjoyed it. And uh, I hope you did too. From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post Podcast. So Kelly Rudy, how's it going? What's new? Uh, You have a lot going on in your life right now.
1: I do. I'm uh, very excited. This is a a big week for me. Uh, Not only with my regular broadcasting duties, but uh, the launch of my book tomorrow on Tuesday the 24th. So I'm uh, very excited. I'm Anticip or I'm hoping that uh, it's going to be received well and and uh, yeah I'm going to I'm super excited about it.
0: Yeah, well, I have read it, so I I think I'm an authoritative voice on this, and it's a good book. <laughs> I I promise.
1: I like it, John.
0: And uh, it's called "Calling the Shots: Ups, Downs, and Rebounds: My Life in the Great Game of Hockey." Um, I guess off the top, you know, you're you spent so much so much time in the league, you transitioned into broadcasting. Uh, Obviously, you work for Hockey Night in Canada and Sports Mm -hmm. Night, you're an analyst. Um, What compelled you to write the book in 2017 compared to maybe 2005?
1: Or sooner. Yeah, Um, or sooner. Yes, that's a great question. One that uh, I hadn't really thought of it too, too much until recently, maybe about a month or two ago when it was uh, completed and uh, just the final stages. And I was was thinking about this because it's kind of like a – To me, anyway, it's kind of like a deep question. First of all, why would you want to write a book about yourself and so on? And uh, I've been approached many, many times over the years, and I've always said no until uh, Kirstie McClellan Day contacted me, I don't know, two years ago, maybe a little bit more than that. And I think just the timing was right. Um, I think with age, you become, you have better perspective. And so... I think my story, my book would have been different had I done it, say, around 1998 when I retired or shortly thereafter. My perspective would have been somewhat different. It might have been uh, more uh, harsh or raw or not as well-informed or thoughtful or over time you sort of look at things and you wonder, you know, this happened to me or I went through this and, and... in hindsight, it turned out to be a really great thing. And so I just think that uh, over time, my perspective of my life and how certain events and certain relationships and people affected me, um, I have a, I think, pretty good understanding where I'm at right now.
0: Yeah, you gain perspective over time, right? So Yeah. Um, And let's talk about the book a little bit, a few stories and, and a few uh, components of the book. And then uh, towards the end of... Of the podcast episode i'll ask you a bit about uh the goalies around the league and, and step away from the book but okay so off the top yeah i thought you had a really good dr- draft story where uh <laughs> you know growing up you, you didn't play at all until 11 which which boggles my mind in general and then you know you didn't make a rep team until you're 16 so obviously a late bloomer uh and then you yeah. don't you don't attend the draft you don't even have an agent and then you know you get picked uh 38th overall by the Islanders in 1980. And then, you know, you have a quick conversation with your brother about it, and then you just kind of go about your life. Like, it wasn't this big uh, production like we see nowadays. Looking back, is it sort of bizarre to think of a time when uh, the draft was kind of no big deal?
1: Uh, The good old days, you mean? Yes, (laughs) The days where you are innocent and you... uh, Like, I had no idea this was going to change my life. I had no idea that day was going to change the uh, the career path I was going to have. I I mean, I wanted to be a park warden in Bamford, Jasper. That was my lifelong goal. And uh, those darn New York Islanders had to call me in 1980 and, t- and tell me that they drafted <laughs> me in the second round. It was In fact, it was Jimmy DeVolano. We were playing ball hockey in our basement, my brother and I, uh, in Edmonton. The phone rings. He goes up to, to get the phone and, you know, I don't even think, I don't think I'm being naive here or a, a bad memory. I don't even think I. it occurred to me that somebody would be calling me that I was going to get drafted. In fact, I was told by people that if, in fact, I were to get drafted, it wouldn't be in, until maybe the third or fourth round, wow. maybe a little bit higher. And then Jimmy DeVolano, the guy that called me and told me about uh, getting drafted, he told me later that they didn't have me rated until about, the, they're hoping around the fourth round. But in the second round, as you said, I was drafted 38th overall. Don Beaupre was chosen by the Minnesota North Stars, 37th overall. And they had Don and I rated the exact same. And so Jimmy Devlano told me that they kind of, not panicked, but changed their thinking. They thought, oh, boy, we're we're drafting after the North Stars. What happens if somebody else uh, sort of rates Kelly the same as Don Beaupre? So they they reacted and they chose me with the 38th pick and uh i mean after that uh i just went back downstairs playing hockey again with my my brother and then i i don't know maybe a month later or more i got a letter stating that uh they're inviting me to training camp which back then again john wasn't uh the the norm also not everybody that was drafted was invited to training camp and i was so lucky to get to invited to the camp and Man alive, being around all those guys. They had just won their first Stanley Cup, first of four consecutive, and to be around those guys and, and meet them was awfully cool.
0: Well, yeah, that's that's a really big part of your, your hockey playing story is that you stepped right into this roster that was stacked, had already won, and you also were uh, being mentored by Al Arbor and being yeah. um, overseen, uh, the legendary late Islanders coach. And a couple of takeaways from your chapter talking about uh, Arbor and, and you do bring him up throughout the book. Like he seemed like a, a very influential guy um, yeah. on your story, but it seemed like he was a pretty uh, innovative coach. He uh, you know, you, you look at it on ice, uh, you know, he, he preached shorter shifts. He preached line matching uh, controlled zone entries instead of dumping the puck in. And then, you know, off the ice, you, you made a point to, to really explain how he would handle each guy differently. It didn't matter. Um, or it did matter who you were you know if you were the star if you were the rookie like everyone sort of had um their own file if you will and at one point he uh he talked to you after you had had a poor outing and and really mm-hmm. uh and really kind of turned your season around was Al sort of the perfect mix like like nowadays there's a lot of good communicators but back then i mean it was it was more uh the hard the hard-ass coaches right
1: No question about it i mean what surprised me about Al is that uh, when i came there I had this preconceived idea that he was going to be really, really old school and uh, that was okay. I I mean, uh, I still highly respected him. I mean, he won four Stanley Cups as a player and four as a coach. So um, he was certainly doing something right. But what really surprised me is, as you mentioned, John, the way that he treated all all of us differently. Now, having said that, it's important uh, to say that we all had the same rules though. Like if, If curfew was at 11, it was 11 for everybody and and all these other off-ice rules that we had, but how he communicated to all of us was certainly different. Like How he treated Dennis Podman was a whole lot different than how he treated me, or Pat LaFontaine, for instance, or Brent Sutter, go down the list. So Al was such a special communicator, and I, I want to believe that maybe one of the first guys back in the day that really thought about sports psychology, because it wasn't big or wasn't even in existence, if I'm not mistaken, in 1983 when I joined the Islanders. You know, he was the first guy really to understand that uh, um, how I communicate to Kelly is very important and it will affect his on-ice performance. It wasn't just gruff. It wasn't just yelling. It wasn't just, you know, you do this and or you're going to the minors. It was, it was great. And, you know, the other thing is uh, he and his wife, Claire, um, were so special to all the family members. If, if for instance, we had a Christmas party, uh, Al and Claire would meet us at the uh, the entrance to the ballroom or something. Right. It was, and they took the time to know my wife's name and stuff. So they were a special couple. I, I really miss them.
0: Well, and you mentioned being personable. There's been countless words written about Wayne Gretzky, but I hadn't really uh, been behind the curtain in regards to the way that he treated people. I, I you know, I know he's a nice guy and everything, mm-hmm. but you, you know, you, you, you. First of all, you tell you tell a bit of a story about about him being a total hockey nerd. Him knowing, you know, what what every player on every team, what his stats are, or what their schedules yep. are like. Um, but then you also you also speak about how he's very courteous courteous and very personable. Is that is that sort of something that a lot of people don't know about, Wayne Gretzky, is that, yeah, he was super talented, but he had a great head on his shoulder, and he was just down to earth.
1: Well, I'm going to generalize here, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but my experience in my soon-to-be 57 years on uh, on earth is that most often, if you're raised properly, you turn out to be a pretty decent person. Yeah, that's so, fair and uh wayne was uh, raised properly from his parents and so to me it wasn't really a secret when his mom and dad would come around they were extremely nice and so wayne and Janet are just that way uh, I'm, wayne does have a special gift though and i'm not talking about his on ice abilities uh he like ron mcclain was given a gift and i i don't use this uh lightly i, I think that they were born with A memory that uh, like a photographic memory very few people have the skill like Ron and and Wayne to remember virtually everybody's name and you can go they can go great lengths without seeing somebody and all of a sudden just recall their name like it's amazing to me and Janet's the same way I I know like I'll be in social settings and I'm not around them tons anymore but We'll be in a social setting and there's a room full of people and they'll run into them and and they can both remember everybody's name. I mean, that's just phenomenal to me and it's a real skill. But putting in that context, I think that's why Wayne was able to store so much information about all the teams and all the players and everybody's schedule and where everybody was in the standings and all that. I marveled at that. I, I just couldn't believe the first time we were sitting in the dressing room getting dressed for a game and Wayne sort of went through the importance of this game for us because where everybody else in the smite division was playing that night or upcoming games. And it really, I just remember looking over at him like, seriously, you know, everybody's <laughs> schedule that well. And, and he had, a he also had a kind of mapped out how well he thought they'd do, whether they'd win maybe against Philadelphia in the spectrum or go to long Island and, and maybe lose. It was really cool. It was fascinating.
0: Well, especially because back then, uh, you know, there was no game center. There was no, you know, call, right. call exactly. up all the NHL schedules on your phone, right? It was like you had to actually go and do some work to get the information. Um, I know Mark Shifley of the Jets is known as sort of a hockey yeah. nerd. Um, yeah. So that's interesting that even, the, you know, the greatest player of all time was was that plugged in. Um, so you, you played against Wayne, obviously, when you entered the league with the Islanders. And then you joined him um eventually in, in la um and and you end up playing him in uh, against him again when you're in uh, San Jose and what struck me about uh your your discussion about San Jose you know the last couple of years of your playing career is that you took Patrick Marlow this guy who now is is a veteran in the league a 38 year old you took him under your wing and you know he's he's a 17 year old kid second overall and he ends up living with you in his rookie year uh, tell me about what what Marleau was like, back then when he you know, hadn't played 1,500 games, hadn't scored uh, 1,000 points?
1: Well, I just interviewed him for Hockey Night uh, two and a half weeks ago. And what I, what I now recognize about Pat is that he hasn't changed. So when uh, I first met Pat uh, in the fall of 1997, he was a really quiet, shy, humble, really great kid. Um, and he's the same way today. He's, uh, just a really, uh, down to earth person. Again, raised properly. His parents are awesome. I, I've uh, had them over at the house a number of times and, and maybe to a certain degree, John, I saw something in Pat, um, something of myself and Pat that when I first, uh, uh, was growing up, I was, an, I'd say an introvert as extremely shy. I found it very hard to, uh, speak in public. I was a great listener though, and I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the qualities that Pat has also, but my most cherished memories with Pat that year were um, when he moved in with us, just the relationship that he had with my entire family. We had three daughters. Uh, He was like a big brother to them. They would go over. He had a little suite off the side of our house, and uh, they would go over, knock on the door, and play video games with him, or he'd come over to our place. But the best The all-time best was after a home game, we'd come home, and uh, we'd sit in our family room, have a bite to eat, usually sandwiches, and we'd just chat about life and hockey and growing up and all these things, and we'd sit up for hours, and we did it uh, after most home games, and it would be the three of us, my wife Donna, Pat, and I, and we'd sit there till usually about three in the morning, sometimes later, and... Just got to know each other so well. It was a uh, memory that uh, w- will never fade for me.
0: Yeah, it's all about the people in the end, right? Um, it is. And so, if we if we if we stop at at the end of your playing career and we transition to your broadcasting career, what were you surprised by by the way that you were able to pick it up? Because you basically went from playing uh, to analyzing almost right away, and. Uh, my memory is a little foggy from that time because I was I was younger, but I've never thought that you were, you know, out of place or anything with hockey night in Canada or sports night. Did you did it feel natural to you even though you were like you mentioned like as a kid you were shy? Like did you sort of just come out of your shell when you're on TV?
1: Well, it started in uh in New York when I went there and there were so many uh, interviewing uh, opportunities and so on because there that was a highly successful and popular team. So I started to get the bug back then, and I used to watch, and I still do, tons and tons of hockey. But back then, not only would I watch the games, but I'd watch the intermissions, and I'd watch the okay. interviewer, and I'd watch the player. And I, I, it was kind of like a personal mission of mine to try and become a better interview so it wasn't so painful for the person interviewing me that uh, I could maybe say something not throwing anybody under the bus but say something maybe different than somebody else and maybe a little bit more informative and so I worked hard at it for many years and uh, so I was pleasantly surprised and very very excited when I was given a broadcasting opportunity it was my first opportunity on hockey night was 1995 I was still playing for the LA Kings and I came home at the end of the, we lost in Chicago the last game of the year, and so right. we missed the playoffs by a point. I came home, and Donna said that John Chen, his executive producer, of Hockey Night at the time, had just called, and uh, he wanted me to call him back. And so he offered me my first ever uh, big, big broadcasting gig. I, I had no idea that I'd ever be on a show like Hockey Night in Canada. It's still it's still crazy today to think that I'm on the biggest hockey show in the entire world. Yeah. And uh, I never had to audition. I was just given the opportunity, and and uh, lucky for me, it, it's uh, panned out. I, it's it's hard work. Like he, the the work to be a broadcaster is, you know, it's not physically hard like my old job, but no. it's <laughs> long hours, and you got to really think about it. And I find I grind away more than ever in uh, broadcast now because there's more stuff out there you have to learn.
0: Well, let's put on your uh, broadcasters or or your analyst hat for a second here and you know as a former goalie I would imagine you you lean towards analyzing goalies and I do notice you know when when you have a segment you're focused on on what's going on between the pipes who who do you enjoy watching analyzing and who do you think is in the top tier in regards to goalies like you know there's Carey Price and then there's there's a bunch of other goalies uh that you could consider up there but from your perspective uh who who are the who's the kind of the cream of the crop
1: you know, when uh, Irina, my publicist at uh, HarperCollins, said you might ask me this, I, I went through the league stats, yep. and I was thinking, well, this shouldn't be all that hard. And, <laughs> and then I'm looking at all the goalies, and now, you know, John, and I'm not trying to dodge a question, I'm looking at it going, uh, I think there's a mis- uh, perception, misconception out there that it's price, and then it kind of drops off. I'm looking at all the list of the goalies, and I'm thinking, okay, so there's Jonathan Quick, yep. phenomenal. He's won two Stanley Cups. He's represented his country a couple times in the uh, Olympics. Craig Anderson has really been amazing. How about Bobrovsky? The, I mean, his work, Varlamov, I'm a big fan. Personally, as just a, as a person, Mark Andre Fleury is one of my favorite guys. Corey Crawford, to me, is very much like um, Chris Osgood when he played. He's so defiant. The reason why he's won uh, the cups is because he never gives in. So you can have skill, you can have all the skill you want, but if you don't have the, the mental makeup like Corey Crawford has or Chris Osgood had. If you're not determined and willing to fight through every situation, you won't have success. So I look at some of these guys differently, and maybe Jake Allen is a guy that's really coming on. Uh, Corey Schneider is a world-class goaltender. Um, The thing is, the point I'm trying to make is that the, the position's never been better. I mean, if you were to be honest, a lot of the goalies that played in the 70s and 80s, and I'm one of them, some guys, and I might be even included in that, uh, we most likely in today's world would be in the minors. That's how good it is. That's how it's evolved. So when I when I try and critique these guys, I have to put it in proper context. Just how amazing they are. Now, to a certain degree, equipment is part of it. I mean, their equipment's better than ever, and they're not afraid of the puck, which that that was something that we certainly were. We were we would often get injured. Um, uh, and not just bumps and bruises, severe injuries, just because of how hard the guy shot the puck. So I I kind of dodged your question, but I <laughs> hope okay. I explain the reason why I did.
0: Well, okay, so who's your favorite goalie to watch? Like you're you're in studio, and you're who do you get excited for because maybe you like their style, or you really think they have a lot of potential, so you're going, okay, I get to see one more game of this guy?
1: Uh, well, th- again, that's hard, but if I had to pick one guy... There'd be two guys, and for two different reasons. Carey Price because of uh, the way that he's under control, and Jonathan Quick for the way that he's not. Uh, I mean, I just love how aggressive he is, how he challenges, how athletic Quick is, and to me, I just, I, I find it fascinating um, just how hard he has to work to play.
0: Okay. All right, so I'm going to let you go here, but first you need to uh, do your elevator pitch uh, for the book and, and let people know where they can find it.
1: Um, well, it's at uh, major bookstores around. It's at uh, Costco. It's at Indigo. Um, you can find it at a whole bunch of independent stores. I know Audrey's in Edmonton will have it, um, but it's called Calling the Shots, and I hope you enjoy it. It's, uh, i poured my heart and soul into it, so I hope that it's a good read for everybody.
0: All right, thanks a lot, Kelly. I appreciate you coming on.
1: Thanks, John. Thank